Fresh brains. Hi. If you're around the OR environment, you know about the outfits that we ritualistically wear, and you may have questioned why we do the things the way we do. On this episode, Carl steps us through the evidence behind some of the different pieces of OR attire. Some of the things have evidence, some of the things don't. Some of the things actually have decent evidence of harm, and yet we're still doing them. If you are someone who has been forced to wear a bouffant or know someone who is, I think you're going to really appreciate this episode. Hope you enjoy. Hey, Bill. Hey. So when I was an intern, yeah, our hospital, well, the adult hospital, had a policy regarding surgical headwear. Mm-hmm. We could only wear bouffants in the OR. Do you mm-hmm. remember this? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No skull caps. It had to be covering all the hair. Mm-hmm. I personally never covered my ears, but <laughs> I know that a lot of people did. Part of the policy. But then in November, I had my nice rotation at Children's Hospital, Wisconsin. And they had skull caps. They had people wearing fabric caps that they brought from home uh-huh. with fun little designs on them. Uh-huh. And it made me wonder, I'm like, what, what's, the, what's the difference here? Well, I guess maybe it's the Children's Hospital versus Adult Hospital. Yeah. No problem. But then in the past year, Freighter changed their policy. Mm-hmm. And now skull caps are okay. Yeah. You can, you can bring your own fabric cap if you want. Even cloth ones, yeah. Yeah. And so it made me wonder, you know, why did they change that policy? Mm-hmm. And then in exploring that question, we start wondering why that policy came to be in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Where did this idea of wearing all these things come from in the first place? Like, why do we specifically wear masks and hats and those things? Is there any actual reason, or is it just like a thing we do? So there's definitely a reason. (laughs) (laughs) Uh (laughs) And it all comes down to some of the changes that you addressed before on our history episode, Uh (laughs) where people were trying desperately to find ways to decrease their infection rate. Uh So kind of a brief historical overview sure. in terms of surgical wear. You know, prior to the 1800s, Surgeons wore street clothes with, quote, the only concessions being the removal of coats and rolling up of shirt sleeves during bloody procedures. Mm-hmm. So surgeons didn't really do anything different from the normal man in that point. They would just wear their normal clothes while they're doing surgeries. Well, yeah. It's just, uh, you just Smoking w- their pipe. <laughs> wash your clothes like any other garment. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. But then uh, at some point in the 1800s, surgeons started wearing a black frock coat to tell the world who they were. And they wore the black because of the somber nature of their work. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing about these is that they were often caked with blood and stiff as a result. So that was apparently the style uh-huh. at the time. Uh-huh. <laughs> one of my friends actually worked at a suit store. And one of the things he pointed out to me at one point was he was, ta- he was asking me about different jackets. And he, he was talking about a surgeon's cuff, which I had never heard of before. But apparently oh, yeah. a surgeon's cuff is when you have a jacket and the buttons actually unbutton because... Back in the day, they would actually wear jackets, and they'd have to kind of like try and roll up their sleeves. Right. You, you can imagine there's only so much caking that you'd want on your sleeves. <laughs> <laughs> try and roll, roll up a little bit. Yeah. But in terms of those historical looks and things like that, actually, mm-hmm. there's a great paper in uh, Anesthesiology of All Publications mm-hmm. uh, from 2016, uh, Adams et al. Yeah. I actually, they, I really love this paper. It's cool. It's a cool look at history. And it's, it's an interesting way, the way they analyze surgical wear, too. Mm-hmm. You know, they basically just took... Every photo they could find in a, in a certain time frame, 1863, 1969, mm-hmm. just to see what people were depicted wearing. And yeah. Since we don't really have any a great other way to tell when certain measures were adopted, mm-hmm. it seems to be a reasonable yeah. reasonable way to look. Sort of objective kind of seeing. I mean, you're, you're obviously biased by the different people that were having pictures taken of them and that sort of things. But, you know, relatively objective measure. Yeah. And, you know, they did point out, you know, it's a convenient sample. They didn't do mm-hmm. a power analysis. Mm-hmm. They didn't really do anything except look at pictures. And they were looking at hospital attire, namely gowns, gloves, and masks. Okay. What they found in each of these, for each of these garments, mm-hmm. was that there's a nice region, a nice linear region at some point where you can tell when these garments were adopted. Mm-hmm. For example, in 1900, you hit your 50% adoption rate with surgical caps 1907 50% adoption rate for gloves and 1916 your 50% adoption rate for surgical masks mm-hmm. we definitely see in general like a significant delay between noticing an issue and actual widespread adoption of that solution sure now a great aspect of this is that 
the uh, use of surgical gloves uh, decreasing infection rate was actually found by Dr. Bloodgood, who's a mentee of Halstead. <laughs> that <laughs> great that, name. <laughs> that can't be a real name. <laughs> oh, it definitely is. Now, granted, uh, some aspects of widespread adoption kind of makes sense for the gloves because, you know, these were yeah. thick rubber gloves. You couldn't feel a thing. You yeah. might actually be safer without gloves. <laughs> yeah. A great example of this is, have you heard about the Soviet doctor in no. uh, Antarctica? Yeah. So there's a, a Soviet doctor named uh, Rogozov. Uh-huh. Hopefully that is his pronunciation. Something <laughs> but, close to that. But he's basically alone in Antarctica, uh-huh. and he notices he's got definite signs of appendicitis and that thing needs to come out <laughs> he's the only guy around that can do surgery exactly he's mm-hmm. he's a surgeon he's the only guy around he has a few other non-medically trained staff around uh-huh and he realizes he's got to be the only guy to get this thing out uh-huh. <laughs> so he has one guy holding the mirror wow another guy handing instruments uh-huh. and a third guy in case one of the first two guys faints <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. And it's actually kind of interesting. So this is, by the way, in the 1960s. Okay. okay. And he realizes, you know, with his dirty mirror or whatever, <laughs> I probably should you got to maximize my sense of touch. So he actually operated on himself without gloves. Sure. So this is, you know, and he did fine. Yeah. Not everyone dies. True. Right. True. Exactly. It's, it's all about probabilities, mm-hmm. not an if then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so this touch thing is definitely a reasonable thing. But I think that's pretty universally regarded that sterile gloves help us out. Yeah. And I'm sure glove technology, how you want, however you want to say it, has improved over the years. Like the gloves that they were starting, first starting to use, made of like, you know, solid rubber. Like you probably can't feel very well through those. Whereas the latex gloves and thinner gloves and those are like, I'm sure the tactile performance of those gloves are much better. Oh, for sure. But yeah, that's an example of something that took 30 years, 30 years mm-hmm. for gloves to be commonly used. Mm-hmm. So... Before we consider the like the evidence behind some of these garments, like the hats, gowns, drapes, what have you, we got to keep in mind that a lot of the things that we do in surgery are based on questionable evidence. Mm-hmm. So we can't test everything. Exactly. I mean, we got to you got to start doing something. And yeah, and if it, and if it seems to decrease rates and it seems to be a low hanging fruit, then mm-hmm. why not? At least that's yeah. the A O R N approach. Oi, oi. All right, keep going. Keep All going. right. <laughs> so. I mean, even even looking at evidence-based medicine, you know? Yeah, yeah. Cochrane first mentioned this. Like the guy Cochrane. Not, right. Yeah. Archie. Ar- <laughs> Archie Cochrane. Archie Cochrane. <laughs> he was writing about evidence-based medicine in the 1970s, but people only really widely started talking about it in the 1990s. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we we're pretty slow to mm-hmm. take up some of these things. But here, let, why don't we just define the points of the garments and the like? Sure. The evidence we'll dissect. Sure. So let's talk about surgical scrubs. We'll talk about drapes, surgical gowns. One of the recent controversies that I was unaware of until hmm. really looking into this was uh, jackets or like a covered arms for non-scrub personnel. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then the most controversial two things that seem to come up a lot are actually masks and hats. Mm-hmm. Gloves do not seem to come up so much, although there are some interesting things about those. I think in, in general, when we're talking about these things, the closer you are to the wound, the more it kind of obviously affects things. So, for example, yeah. gloves, it's pretty obvious that gloves probably reduce infection. And I, I think there's good evidence that they actually do. So that's it's yeah. not so that's not something that needs to be so controversial. When you start getting taking steps back from the surgical field, like masks, hats, people wearing masks who are 10 feet away from the field, then then I think we can, there's room for kind of looking at the evidence and seeing, is this actually affecting things? All the way back to laminar flow in the OR, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. One thing that kind of plagues the evidence behind all of these things is the proxy measurement issue, which you see in a lot of research in general, where you're trying to study one thing, but that thing is either very rare or it's not something that you want to actually have exposure to. Like you don't actually want to do something that you think is going to cause an infection. So you use proxies. Like instead of saying looking at surgical site infection rates, we'll look at the amount of bacteria we can grow on a Petri dish as a proxy for how infectious this thing is. But you always got to keep in mind that's not necessarily true just because something grows more on a petri dish the surgical site infection risk might be exactly the same you know so you got to be careful how much you infer from studies that don't use actual outcomes exactly and i think that's going to be something that we're going to see again and again in today's talk yeah <laughs> so some fun stuff when uh-huh. we ta- so starting off with just scrubs yes you gotta start asking the question you know why are we wearing clothes at all 
for, for <laughs> sure. Go back, go back to first principles. What's right. what's up? What am I doing with this thing on my body? Now, the mm-hmm. common thought for scrubs is that <laughs> you're you know you're containing the bacteria on your skin. Sure. And you also, it's a garment that the hospital can launder for you. And admittedly, I don't really want to argue too much against having free, <laughs> free hospital laundered outfits for the day. Uh huh. I it, wear them every day. <laughs> it is my only laundry is really underwear and socks. <laughs> yeah, it does really significantly reduce the amount of laundry you have to do. Yeah, it's pretty nice, especially because you know I got I got a wife and two girls at home, so uh-huh. they go through clothes like crazy. <laughs> yeah, already have enough laundry. Yeah, but in terms of containing microbes, containing your skin flakes, what have you. They actually did study this in the 70s. Randomizing people to not wearing clothes? In a sense. <laughs> so they, it's it's one of those things, you know, we were just talking about. They use surrogates. Sure. Why wear clothes at all? And actually, that is a question brought up by Hill, Howell, and Blowers. Hmm. <laughs> they looked at the dispersal of Staph aureus into the air. Uh-huh. And... They went so far as testing subjects in a chamber, collecting samples, you know, from clothed subjects, from subjects wearing their own clothes, from subjects wearing specific clothes, even using uh, polyethylene garments to isolate parts of the body. Okay. And a good summary of their results here was that shedding from the skin increased from the friction of the clothes. And they found that the nude subjects shed significantly less staph aureus than the hmm. clothed subjects. <laughs> hmm. So we would probably reduce our surgical infections if we did our surgeries naked. Well, if you totally go off of the those surrogate measures for infectious load. Uh, prob- <laughs> then probably. Yeah. What about? But there are social standards. <laughs> were there specific body sites that were more infectious? So thanks to those polyethylene garments that they checked out, you know, uh-huh. they were able to isolate the maximum shedding of Staph aureus to the male's perineum. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so they actually did put in their abstract possible recommendation for bacteria-proof underpants. And that's, <laughs> that's a quote. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> so, but all kidding aside, you know, uh-huh. AORN recommends hospital laundering them, and I agree with the hospital laundering them. The ARN uh, recommends hospital laundering them and actually even specifies their transport in terms of the, the transport vehicles need to be disinfected. Hmm. I th- that was the thing that really <laughs> yeah. stuck out to me was yeah. just that because they, they go really into, really heavily into the process. Yeah. So, of course, that's part of the process. So it was, it was interesting. Was there anywhere in this that you found evidence for specifically using like – scrubs that stay at the hospital versus going home or using your own clothes or that sort of thing? Oh, you mean like stuff against wearing scrubs home? Yeah. I'm just looking at the, in this like naked study Uh that you brought up. Oh yeah, look at that. If you look at the amount of staff when they're wearing their own clothes that they brought in from home and the clean scrubs, to me it, it actually doesn't look like there's much of a difference between those two. If you're wearing your own clothes or you're wearing clean OR clothes, not that big a difference. But then they have, if you're wearing the scrubs for four to eight hours in the OR, the infectious rate actually goes way up. Yeah, significantly more colony-forming units. Now, that being said, you know, if you look at subject C, he had twice as many <laughs> colony-forming units on his own clothes. Well, that. So maybe yeah. C just doesn't do great laundry or C, something. C needs to take a shower. For the evidence that AORN cites, when there is not great evidence around, they mm. actually look really heavily rely on these surrogate studies. And the quote that you'll see a lot is, the benefits likely outweigh the risks mm-hmm. for a lot of these guidelines that mm-hmm. kind of have questionable, like... So for the things that there's no evidence for, they're just like, well, it kind of makes sense and it's easy to do, so just do it. And that's exactly what they did. Yeah. So if I'm going to summarize what we've said so far, basically, scrub-wise, the best thing to do is be naked. And But if you have to wear something, wear bacteria-proof underpants. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So but, what else do we got? One of the things that's been present since the early 1900s has been the idea of a surgical drape. Now, what they used to use was sterilized muslin. Okay. Which is just like cotton fabric stuff. Yeah, cotton fabric. One of the issues here is you'll see is that it wasn't closely woven. It was just regular cotton fabric that they sterilized. I'm imagining in my head, like, so we have, we have some of those blue towels. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> and I've, I mean, I've seen some of them that get kind of tattered and you let, you can literally see through them. And oh, I'm wondering, yeah. you know, is, is that actually doing anything? Yeah, I always wondered that too, especially, you know, when we're draping for a shunt. Uh-huh. <laughs> Something that's really high on the infectious risk. 
Ex- spectrum. Exactly. And then, but you're draping for it. You're you're putting these towels down, and then you realize, you know, I've just put this towel down over a definitely contaminated portion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like when you're putting it over the belly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What evidence is there for using drapes like that? So it all started in the 50s with William Beck, and he did an experiment to see, you know, are these drapes doing anything? Mm-hmm. And so he set up a contaminated auger plate. Mm. He put these sterilized muslin drapes on top and then put a second auger plate on top of those, kind of like uh. a little, little muslin sandwich. <laughs> cool. And so he actually did find that when they're dry, when everything is dry, there was no cross-contamination. Okay. So it turns out it, is effect- it, it okay. appears to be effective for that, at least for, based on that early experiment. Mm-hmm. But once they got wet, Mm-hmm. The contamination was profound on the second sterile plate. Sure, <laughs> he even tried to do a little design on on the first plate, but uh-huh. the contamination was, was so severe on the second plate that he couldn't reproduce this design. Sure. He had made a cross and then just covered the second plate. Sure. So that started a search for you know finding drapes that could be resistant to fluid. Okay. Or that they could keep things from getting contaminated. Yeah, that makes sense. There's a lot of info about fabric versus disposable drapes. You know, as you can imagine, some people felt very strongly about one side versus the other. Sure. But it turns out there's actually only one, there's one good randomized controlled trial. Okay. Where they were looking at patients undergoing coronary artery surgery, and they wanted to see, you know, do we need to use closely woven cotton drapes that are fluid resistant, or should we use these disposable drapes? Mm-hmm. And so they did 505 patients. They found that drapes was not really a significant contributor to infection rates, like the type okay. of drapes used. Okay. Did they find anything that was significantly associated with infections? <laughs> Turns out being closed by a senior surgical trainee was. <laughs> <laughs> not the juniors, not the attendings, but the senior trainees. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Wonder, wonder if time pressures have any <laughs> yeah, yeah. factor there. There are a few further retrospective general surgery studies that show reductions before disposable drapes to after disposable drapes, hmm. like in their hospital when they went from you know the, the sheets to the drapes. Yeah. But they're not worth mentioning in detail. They do show a decrease in risk of surgical site infection. Hmm. Now, none of this actually has to do with neurosurgery. These are all general surgery sure. studies or thoracic surgery studies. Sure. But the RCT showed no difference, mm-hmm. and the retrospective studies did show a difference. Okay. And at this point, I think the it sounds like the disposable drapes probably cost less than laundering the fabric. Yeah, yeah. At least at our hospital. Yeah. So drape evidence for drapes so far, it sounds like cloth... In an experimental setting, cloth seems to be a decent barrier unless it gets wet. Evidence for using cloth drapes or is it disposable drapes? It seems like maybe there's some observational data to show that the disposable drapes are better. But we're not quite sure this because this randomized control trial was, was equivocal. So with the cloths that we have now... Mm-hmm. that are more resistant mm-hmm. to penetrance to fluids compared to what Beck used in his experiment. Mm-hmm. There does not appear to be a difference between that and the disposable drapes that we currently use. Okay. And we'll talk more about what exactly that means when we talk about gowns because in a lot of these studies, drapes and gowns are considered yeah. in the same studies. Yeah. For You're looking at penetrance of fluid from the fabrics. So. Exactly. That was apparently a big controversy in the 90s and 2000s. We'll see. So what about those adhesive things like the adhesive piece that you put on the surgical field like Ioban is the one we commonly use right sometimes people use just pure adhesive drapes and the idea behind these adhesive drapes is if you stick whatever is on the skin to the skin mm-hmm. and you only make a cut in a very small portion of it mm-hmm. that you probably decrease the infectious rate from skin flora sure which that sounds makes like sense. A, yeah it, may, it makes sense in theory and that's is there evidence that it actually does anything? Exactly. And so turns out that they had multiple Cochrane reviews on this stuff. Huh, okay. And they found out that this adhesive drape without iodoforms impregnated into it, there was a significantly higher risk. Higher. Surgical, yeah, higher risk. Interesting. Yeah, you increase the risk of infection by using a pure clear adhesive drape. Hmm. Do they have any idea why that might be? A lot of conjecture. Yeah. You know what that makes me think about? I know our practice has varied a lot. I'm sure all over the world practice is variable. But for when we put in EVDs, I've seen various ways of dressing them. And one way that we did for a while is you take one of those big tegaderms and you just stick it on top. And I don't believe we do that anymore, right? So here is different in that respect because I know some places do dress the EVDs. Yeah. 
but you know, we don't. Yeah. So what I <laughs> what I remember when we used to throw the tegaderms on top is it would just collect sweat and moisture and stuff and it would just it would look like it was like incubating stuff in there. Like that's not actually helping. Exactly. And actually when you start talking about clab seas and occlusive dressings for those, yeah. You see sweat building up. You gotta take them off. You yeah. know, and actually yeah. and if you, you can imagine the femoral lines are the biggest issue. Oh there. yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of the same issue. Yeah. So that just that's what I thought of when you say like that these adhesive drapes are just trapping stuff. Yeah, they they might just be trapping things rather than actually keeping things out. Exactly. And kind of in line with what you'd expect though, the iodophore impregnated drapes like the ioban. Mhm. They actually didn't seem to have a significant effect on surgical site infections. Hmm. No better than if they just had Nothing. Exactly. So if that was kind of an interesting finding, though, that the uh, adhesive drapes, which yeah. I know they, like the classic craney drape is that clear plastic Oh yeah. adhesive drape with, yeah. the, with the bag and everything. Yeah, it is. But it's clear plastic. Yeah. Hmm. The problem is, though, you know, as is everything else, it's really hard to get people to move away from what they've been doing for years. Hmm. <laughs> so you said with adhesive drapes, the infection rate goes up in this Cochrane review. What is actually the evidence base of that? What's that based on? So there are five randomized controlled trials mm. where they look at adhesive drapes versus, and these are drapes without iodine impregnation, uh-huh. versus no drapes. Okay. And they pulled those results. It's a total of about 3,000 patients. Okay. So then there actually is a statistically significant increase in the risk for surgical site infection. The relative risk was, the mean relative risk was one23 Okay. But the confidence interval was 1.02 to 1.48. So, okay. you know, it's, it's a significant result. Yeah. Against draping or yeah. against the adhesive drapes. The relative risk, though, once you include the iodine impregnated, I mean, for only iodine impregnated drapes, though, mm-hmm. two RCTs, and that relative risk is basically one. Okay. It doesn't improve rates. It doesn't worsen your infectious rates. Okay. It doesn't seem to do much. So it seems like there's actually pretty strong evidence that we should not be using non-iodine impregnated adhesive drapes. Yeah. And if anything, since these relative risks are so close to one, all we're doing is increasing cost potentially. So yeah. So there's strong evidence against using the non-iodine adhesive and the iodine adhesive drapes don't seem to matter. That's exactly what the, these appear to show. Yeah. That being said, none of these looked at specifically neurosurgical operations. Sure. Uh, these are C-sections, heart surgery, what have you, but sure. nothing along the lines of craniotomy or mm-hmm. spine surgery. Mm-hmm. So there is that caveat there. Okay. So quick summary. Uh-huh. Adhesive drapes, clear adhesive drapes appear to increase surgical site infectious risk. Iodine-impregnated adhesive drapes do not appear to increase or decrease the risk of surgical site infections. So what about gowns? Mm-hmm. Now, early 90s, people start moving away from these frocks that we were talking about earlier. They're wearing gowns. Early In the early 90s. <laughs> 1900s. <laughs> One of the, 1900s. They're like the same time. I'm yeah. old. <laughs> so early 1900s, people are moving away from those black surgical frocks they're wearing the you know surgical gowns the white gowns with gloves and everything at this point but it was only in the 1940s that they really start producing effective gowns like around world war ii Hmm. first material being quarpel which was cotton with a water resistant finish it was closely woven and that was actually found to be a barrier to staph aureus in broth Okay. You know, unlike the muslin that we talked about earlier, the, yeah. this stuff, the, the, they could actually put the broth up to, you know, it's not a great pressure, but one centimeter of water mm-hmm. and it wouldn't penetrate. Okay. Like I was saying before, that's just a proxy for what we actually care about, which is infectious risk. So is there any evidence that these things actually change infectious risk? So they didn't really look at that sort of thing around that point. Uh-huh. But what we do have are in 1980, they started looking at single-use gowns versus multi-use gowns. Okay. That, now, that was a study of 2,253 patients. It was all general surgery, clean and clean contaminated, and they, they just found that the disposable gown had a significant effect on the infectious rate hmm. compared to multi-use gowns. What, so was the, what was the change? Well, the drop went from 6.4% to 2.3% for all comers. Wow. For the clean subgroup, it dropped by about half from 4.4% to 2.0%. Uh-huh. And clean contaminated was a huge drop from 10.9% to 2.1%. Hmm. So that this was specifically single-use versus multi-use gowns. It seems like single-use, significantly less infections. Right. Okay. But there wasn't much evidence in terms of outcomes beyond this, you know. So what, what are the actual standards? 
but basically, we, in the OR, we only use level three and level four gowns. Okay. Where level three is used in quote moderate risk situations. It's a barrier to large amounts of fluid penetration. When you have level four gown, that's when you have high infectious risk situations. Okay. That's kind of where they're at, though. Most almost all these things have to do with penetration mm-hmm. and whether or not the gown penetrates. Hmm. But not great evidence base for that again. But you sure. know, it's, it's along with that AORN sort of yeah. criteria. It's well, likely to help more than harm. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's that one study that showed that you know changing up your gowns actually does seem to drop the infection rate. So it's, it's probably mm-hmm. related somehow. Exactly how we define the exact penetrance that's going to cause infection. That's going to that's going to be hard to tease out. You can't do like a randomized trial of every single kind of fabric. So seems like they generally seem to matter, and we have sort of standards, but we don't know exactly what's the best. Right. What else do we got? Well, once you step a little further back from the table, you start talking about the non-scrub staff. I'm sitting there in my swim trunks. Where you're sitting there in your swim trunks, but did you have your arms covered? Oh, rarely. I remember it coming out previously where we were supposed to have our arms covered all the time. And they, the hospital specifically came out with these like scrub jacket machines. And they say, you have to be wearing the scrub jackets. And the people who are like really nitpicky about the rules, kept, you know, keep reminding everyone, hey, you know, you're supposed to be wearing scrub jackets. And like no one wore scrub jackets. <laughs> Yeah, it seems to be a big point of contention. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you can actually tell when things were big points of contention as a general rule by looking mm-hmm. at the number of studies that came out about these like <laughs> sure. seemingly menial things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Suddenly, everyone's studying this one issue. Yeah. <laughs> right. How much do your arms need to be covered? Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, in 2015, without a great evidence base, they came out with that recommendation. All non-scrub personnel should have arms covered with long sleeve jackets in restricted and semi-restricted areas. Mm-hmm. Scrub attire should be worn that covers the arms when preparing the patient or when preparing or packaging sterile items in the clean assembly area of sterile processing. So restricted and semi-restricted. So, like, not just in the OR, but, like, like pack you and stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you, it's kind of a interesting recommendation. Yeah. <laughs> So what evidence is there for arms being covered, jackets, et cetera? Did, did you find anything? So there were a couple articles, and it goes back to the 70s again. You know, okay. when we were talking about naked men or men in underwear, mm-hmm. there's an article about, you know, you shed 10 milligrams of skin flakes mm-hmm. per two hours in clothing. That's and gross. The, and they showed that the, the more skin that was covered, the less bacterial shedding there was in that same time frame. But there's no new real evidence between then and 2015. Mm-hmm. Someone seems to have gotten an idea in their head that it was a great idea to put mm-hmm. it in. They're like, you know what? We haven't. And actually, they say it in, in there, you know, there's not really great evidence against it. There's maybe some evidence for doing it. So they said, all right, well, let's go ahead. Yeah. Let's make it a recommendation. I'll also point out in that first naked study, they found that wearing less clothes seemed to actually cause less staff. The logic behind that is that the more clothes you're wearing, the more it actually rubs up against your skin and aerosolizes those skin cells. Right. So you have to wonder which is the bigger effect, the rubbing of skin cells or the containment of those cells. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And to me, the thing that stands out the most is just that there's no recent evidence for any of this. This guideline just kind of came out of the blue. Right. right, right. So they came out with this recommendation in 2015. Yeah, the AORN. Yeah. Okay. And, of course, some people felt that it was an excessive burden. People always do <laughs> sure. when you ask them to do something new. Sure, <laughs> especially if they don't think there's a reason for it. Exactly. Anytime you have some shaky evidence like that, there's always going to be someone that says, wait, there's no evidence for that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. And so there was one paper that was especially informative in this respect. (laughs) Yeah. So Stapleton et al., their hospital in 2016 implemented this policy regarding disposable jackets. Sure. That needed to be worn. So they had about 30,000 patients pre-implementation, about 30,000 post. Mm Mm-hmm. And what they saw was 0.87% surgical site infection rate before. Mm Mm-hmm. And then a 0.83% afterwards. So the p-value of (laughs) 0.61. So... Basically the same. And at the same time, they also found that they spent $1.7 million on jackets. <laughs> yeah. That's $1.7 million at that one hospital. At that one hospital. Exactly. So not only did they find that there was no effect of this intervention, but it was a very costly intervention to mm-hmm. make. Mm-hmm. So it's not the only one addressing these jackets either. But uh-huh. it's, it had the biggest end. Once the surgical community you know, put this out, AORN said, all right, 
Maybe not. So they pulled back. Now they do not have a recommendation regarding covering the arms. Sure. But they do include the quote, although the benefits are likely to exceed the harms, you know, we can't make a recommendation. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. One of the most commonplace things you see on TV, one of the most commonplace things you actually see in the OR, Mm -hmm. people freak out if you're not wearing one, masks. Masks are definitely in the like mental image of a surgeon. You know, masks are just like, if you weren't wearing a mask, it's there's something wrong with that. And the, the classic picture in my mind of a surgeon's head includes a hat and a mask. Yeah. So that's the image you come up with. Yeah. So you figure there'd be a lot of things supporting these two things. What's the history behind wearing masks in surgery? You know, is around 1900, these interventions starting to take hold. Like we were talking about before, at the end of the 1800s, beginning of the 1900s, we're starting to recognize there are sources of infection coming from the environment. People say, hey, your mouth's kind of gross. Maybe we should cover it. Right. And actually, it's one of those things where you have really early evidence supporting that. Sure. So in 1905, a physician named Hamilton uh-huh. actually checked the strep from the wounds of infected patients uh-huh. and looked at the strep isolated from people's throats. Yeah. And actually found that the same strep was infecting him. So it actually seemed to make sense yeah. at that time. Yeah. And it was not even questioned yeah. until like the 1980s when uh, another surgeon named Orr in 1981 said, you know, we've been doing this for a century and it was important before, but nobody knows if it's actually still important given yeah. the, all the other interventions that have been made in the in the interim. Sure, yeah. And so what he did in 1980 was he removed the masks from everybody in the OR <laughs> for six months. <laughs> nice. And here's the crazy thing. Uh-huh. He actually found a significant decrease in his infection rate. It went from like 37 to 5.4% per year for the four uh-huh. years before. Uh-huh. And then 1.8% in the six months after they were eliminated. So like almost halved the infectious rate. Exactly. P is less than 0.05. His entire abstract is two sentences. Okay, what's the abstract? The quote, no masks were worn in one operating theater for six months, period. There was no increase in the incidence of wound infection, period. (laughs) That was it. (laughs) That's it. Done. Nothing about methods, nothing, no no conclusions, no, 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 quote, need for further study, blah, 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 just... This is this, this is, is crazy. It. Did they mention in the paper why, like mechanistically, why they think the infection rate would have dropped? So it looks like he might be. He pointed out a paper that seemed to say that facial movements behind a mask can increase wound contamination. He actually, in the paper, he actually does mention that you know surgeons speak so many words per operation. It looks like somewhere between one hundred and five hundred words, and mm-hmm. each you know each word is a movement of your mouth. Mm-hmm. So he pointed that out. But he and, said, but he does say, quote, whatever its relation to contamination, bacterial counts, or the dissemination of squames, there's no direct evidence of wearing the mask that reduces wound infection. Yeah. And so, so he, basically he's saying, like, there's a lot of possible reasons it might reduce it. Here's a possible reason that it might increase it. Yeah. But our result is that yeah. <laughs> it decreased it. Yeah. <laughs> taking away the mask. Regardless of the mechanism, it seems like taking away the mask decreases. Whether it's, I, I mean, I, the mouth movement thing makes me think again of the scrub thing. Like you put a surface there and you're moving your mouth back and forth. You're just actually increasing the amount of stuff that's coming off. Exactly. One thing that that actually makes me think of, I know in our operating rooms, we have these green masks. I think they're called fog-free yeah, and yeah. they have this plastic strip on the top of them, and I think I think the point of it is to try to prevent your breath, the moisture from your breath getting into your glasses, your your eye covering, to fog them up, right? Yeah. But what I've noticed multiple times is that so they're meant to stop the moisture from going up. They actually collect moisture in them, and I have seen at least twice where a, there have been droplets forming that have actually dripped into the surgical field. Yeah, and I, I remember once one of the circulating nurses had to wipe away the drops that were forming on mine when I still yeah. use those. Yeah. I don't use those anymore yeah. for that reason. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what this paper is showing is masks do not seem to reduce the risk of infection and, in fact, probably actually increase the risk of infection. Yeah, based on his study. Now, granted, this is just it's not randomized. It mm-hmm. was just an intervention done in time. It's almost basically a retrospective review. Yeah, yeah. So there actually are some quasi-randomized controlled trials here. Chamberlain in 1984 actually cited this Orr paper saying, hey, you know, maybe we should actually look into this stuff. Yeah, yeah. So he did 41 procedures, 25 with a mask, 16 without. There wasn't any difference between the minor procedures. Mm-hmm. But in terms of the major abdominal surgery, three out of five had surgical side infection without masks, and zero out of four had the same without. Hmm. But in 1991, Tunaval came around Yeah. And said, you know what? That's kind of a small study. So he made his oh, own. yeah, yeah. They looked at 3,088 cases, and they found that the infectious rate was actually 4.7% in the masked 
set mm-hmm. versus 3.5 percent in the unmasked set. Now that was not mm. a significant result. Yeah, but it does show a trend towards you know the mask actually seeming to increase infectious rates again. Yeah, again, same thing. There was that first study that showed increased infection rate with masks. There was that small quasi-randomized study with very small numbers that maybe had an increase in risk, but but they were very small numbers of patients. And so now we have a, a bigger study, over 3,000 patients. Still not a significant difference, but a trend to masks being worse. Exactly. So that to me, the bulk of the evidence there is leaning towards masks actually make things worse. That's what it appears to be. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And th- these are all studies done of the surgeons themselves who are operating over the field, right? Right. But everybody wears masks in the OR. Yes. Being the anesthesiologist, I know that very well. But they actually looked at the non-scrub personnel. That, okay. That's the full randomized control trial that exists. Okay. That, what was, that? that was also done in 2010 in Australia. Okay. And they actually looked at OBGYN, general surgery, orthopedics, urology. They looked at about 800 patients, and they found that 11.5% had a surgical site infection when these non-scrub personnel were wearing masks and 9% when they had no hmm. mask. Another trend towards yeah. mask being a problem. Yeah. So that one still wasn't significant. But if you look at the raw numbers, the effect size is at least in the wrong direction. Masks, every time we're looking at these big studies, masks seem to make things worse. Yeah. So they actually combined these results in a Cochrane review. Uh-huh. The most recent one was 2016. Looked at the, those three, and they basically conclude there was no difference. Okay. But the thing is, here, their biggest contributor was that Webster study that looked at non-scrub personnel. So we still don't really have great evidence for scrubbed personnel, like yeah. the surgeon wearing a mask or not. Yeah. But I will say, personal experience, Yeah. the number of times I've come out of that OR with like a few spatters on that mask where a mucous membrane of mine would be... While the evidence seems to be slightly against wearing masks for a surgical site infection, mm-hmm. I think they seem to be more useful as a... Personal protective Exactly, treatment. exactly. In the same way that goggles might not mm-hmm. decrease risk of surgical site infection from your eyelashes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they might be more valuable as a personal protective thing. Okay, interesting. So that's, uh, that's where I could see wanting to require that yeah. from an OSHA perspective or something. Sure, sure. Still, I don't think that makes a good argument for me having to wear a mask sitting over behind the big surgical drape that you guys put up. Right. Overall, especially if you look at the, the Cochrane review that, that pulls it all together, it seems like there's a pretty good number of studies that actually have a pretty good number of patients in them and show no difference. Right. Or they were slightly underpowered, and the effect size is small enough that no mask is better than mask. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So not good evidence for wearing masks from the perspective of protecting the patient. There might be other benefits, like you're saying, personal protective equipment stuff. Right, right. But if you're going purely by what's benefiting the patient, it does not appear that masks are benefiting the patient. Interesting. In fact, it might be hurting them. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I mean, like you said before, it's it's particularly interesting because masks are so iconic of the surgical field. And in fact, they might not be a good idea. So for hats. Yeah, that's that's the big controversial one nowadays. Yeah, we'll end with a giant one that freaked a lot of people out. Mm -hmm. So the cap started being incorporated in the early 1900s. It's that same push to exclude Mm -hmm. any possible source of infection. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I thought was really interesting that came out of this whole argument is, again, the image of the surgeon, that, like, surgical cap, that skull cap, was always really closely associated with, like, the surgical head covering, right? Oh, yeah. And there's, like, this little battle between the American College of Surgeons Uh and the AORN at this point. Uh So what happened was, just a brief history, in, in 2014... AORN cited a few case series and case reports that showed a possible association with shedding of operative personnel mm-hmm. from their head okay. and surgical site infection patients. There was a study in 1973 by Dineen. They had 12 patients with surgical site infection possibly associated with hair. 11 was from one surgeon. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that surgeon <laughs> needs to wash his hair. So that's exactly what they did. They made him... Ha- <laughs> Uh-huh. They made him. They said, "You get a short haircut. Uh-huh. You wash your hair with uh-huh. the uh, like the iodine scrub." Uh-huh. <laughs> and did that and, solve the infection? Well, actually, yeah, they did. <laughs> so what happened was they did this intervention. Uh-huh. He stopped having those infections. Wow. They took it away. They said, "Go do what you normally do," and then he had those infections again. <laughs> wow. All right. So it actually seemed to work in that isolated case. Interesting. Okay. And then uh, in 1990, they showed that there was a cluster of 20 patients over three years that they 
isolated the source to a surgical tech that had some psoriatic scalp lesions that were shedding. Hmm. Okay. So citing these uh, little, you know, these little isolated case series, yeah. they said, you know what? You cover all of your hair, your ears, and the little bottom of your neck. Any possible thing that you can cover, you cover, mm-hmm. which kind of became a de facto requirement for a bouffant. Sure. Now, they'll say yeah. up and down that they didn't require a bouffant, but yeah. they kind of required a bouffant. Yeah, <laughs> I remember reading through some of the back and forth where everyone, because the hospitals all interpreted the guidelines as saying you need to wear a bouffant, because they basically said you need to do this. The only way to do this is with a bouffant. We're not saying you have to wear a bouffant. And th- when you look at the arguments back and forth between the surgeons and the AORN, like the, the AORN keeps saying, well, we never said you have to wear a bouffant, but they kind of said that. Exactly. And here's the thing, though. You know, uh-huh. it probably would have gone by the wayside. <laughs> uh-huh. They uh-huh. started citing hospitals. The famous articles in the Boston Globe where Brigham and Women's got cited for surgeons' hair not being adequately covered. Uh-oh. And so, of course, that seems to be what like really sparked the fire and said, yeah. no, 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 yeah. no, no. <laughs> yeah. I kind of think it's hilarious that the thing that pisses off surgeons the most is saying, you can't wear a skull cap, you have to wear a bouffant. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's like, I don't know, it's such like a an image-based thing. Like, I mean, so yes, we can actually dive into the evidence, but I don't think the evidence is what pissed the surgeons off. I think it was like, I'm not wearing a bouffant. Some people really associate that skull cap with their identity, and they yeah. try to take it away with yeah. really shaky evidence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So of course they're going to freak out, especially when... They say, screw it, I'm doing it anyway. Yeah. And then you hit him with a citation. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So what happened after that? So what happened after that is the ACS then got involved, and they actually made guidelines that include the skull cap. Mm -hmm. And so their guidelines basically said along the lines of, you know, because of the shaky evidence basis, but also because of decorum, our history, (laughs) and the the symbolism of the skull cap. Yeah. We're going to say skull caps are okay. So, you know, there were a lot of petty bickering back yeah. and forth. Oh, so yeah. academic surgeons do what they did best, and they publish studies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You want to throw crappy evidence at you, we'll give you good evidence. Right. And so there were a lot of studies out, a lot of studies out at this point. Uh-huh. But I think since, you know, we're fresh brains. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, let's take the giant neurosurgery study out of Buffalo. Sure. So they showed that after a Buffon-only policy was adopted, there was a slight increase in infectious risk for their procedures. Mm-hmm. So they went from 0.77% surgical side infections for all comers to 0.84%, okay. which was not a significant increase. And their end was about 15,000. So it's huge. It, exactly. So if you are if you don't have a significant effect <laughs> after 15,000, <000, laughs> yeah, there's yeah. no effect. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then finally, just because we were talking about surrogate measures and everything, yeah. there was actually a study that looked at surrogate measures. So Markle et al. in 2017 said, all right, so is there anything that might support theoretically the use of a bouffant? Yeah. So they looked at disposable bouffants versus disposable skull caps mm-hmm. versus a laundered skull cap, like an actual like cloth Like one. a cloth one, yeah. Like one you bring from home. Mm-hmm. The disposable bouffant, significantly higher shed rate of microbes. By sure. They, that was the passive plate analysis where they put the plate there and see what sheds. Sure. I mean, they they look, you could see right through them. They exactly. Looked- and they showed that you know, that surrogate of, I can see through it, (laughs) actually translates to a higher average pore size, a higher maximum pore size, and increased shedding. Yeah, yeah. So you see there's no effect on the actual outcome you care about. Mm -hmm. Theoretically, it should be worse. Yeah. And so in 2018, AORN conceded. They're saying, okay, fine. There's no recommendation (laughs) that can be made. So at this point, it's wear whatever your hospital (laughs) wants. Yeah, yeah. What about beards? So, like we mentioned before, this is a topic that hits me personally. If you have not seen a picture of me, I have a nice full beard. And really, it's really annoying to cover it up in the OR. And I like to grow one out every week or so and then get rid of it. (laughs) Shave it back. (laughs) Right? Uh Uh-huh. But it's less controversial. But, you know, our local hospital policy is definitely to cover it. There is a little bit of evidence about this, you know, but it goes back to using that surrogate. Sure. For colony-forming units passively collected in the air. But the interesting thing, though, is that they showed that they're, in terms of CFUs from passively collected from using the hood that actually covered the beard versus a simple mask, there's no difference between that and using the full hood to cover the beard is what they showed. And they showed there's no difference between bearded and non-bearded subjects. Cool. In this study, it was only 
10 subjects. Right. And it was a experimental study. It didn't it wasn't actually like kind of real life situation. Exactly. But I'm all for letting your beard hang out. You know? Exactly. And from what it appears to be though, like what will we have it doesn't seem to matter too much as long. Yeah. But here's the thing though. Mm-hmm. AORN wants it covered. <laughs> yeah. That's another one of those you know, benefit probably outweighs the risk. Yeah. And there's no real reason not to do it if yeah. you don't look at cost, I guess. And unfortunately, kind of like with all these topics, you know, we can go through the evidence and we can say, you know, this, there is a huge amount of evidence for this, there isn't. If you bring it down to what we have to practically do, we're, we're kind of at the mercy of, you know, our hospital guidelines, the AORN guidelines, the ASA, whatever, you know, it's kind of, if they say we have to do it, it doesn't really matter if it makes sense, which is kind of frustrating to a lot of us people who are, you know, really academic, evidence-based oriented. Well, well, exactly. And the agencies that set regulations on us, the agencies that check out hospitals, you know, like CMS Mm -hmm. or JCO, Mm -hmm. they need succinct things to tell them what to do in terms of what's an okay hospital. Yeah. And so it makes sense for them to look at these guidelines and say, all right, well, AORN puts out succinct guidelines, cites something that can be called evidence for them. And so that seems to be a good measure of what's a reasonable thing to do in a hospital. Yeah. By the way, the ASA also recommends covering your beard. Ah. Sorry. Traitors. (laughs) So it kind of makes sense. And so it kind of really speaks to the need to involve physicians on these committees that create these guidelines. If you feel really strongly about something. (laughs) Yeah, you can't just complain about it. You got you got to go ahead and try to get on these committees that make those decisions and make your case to them. Yeah, <laughs> that was actually my biggest impression from this whole blow up recently of all these new recommendations coming out. It is. I love to see the response from like the academic surgeons coming out and saying, "Okay, we're going to do these studies." And I really think if we want to have a say in all these guidelines, we really need to be involved on like the national level of getting input into the making of these guidelines. Right. Unfortunately, <laughs> AMA membership is an all-time low. <laughs> yeah. When I went to Washington, D.C. with the AMA, we were trying to learn how to, like, you know, talk to our senator, talk to our congressman. Yeah. One of their intro lectures actually talked about how notoriously stingy doctors are with regards to political contributions. Sure. And that we don't really financially or otherwise support the candidates that agree with us. So it's hard for candidates, for politicians to actually want to do what we ask them to. (laughs) Yeah, sure. So so it's it's a systemic issue. It's a whole big issue beyond that. You can't complain if you don't put your money where your mouth is. Yeah, in in a sense. Also, it kind of speaks to, you know, we advance our field by doing science, but maybe we need to advance our field otherwise. That's that's a whole separate discussion. Yeah, (laughs) for sure. I mean, there's so much going on in the field of medicine in general from the business policy aspect that if we want to be able to control some of these things, we really need to be involved in like policy level decisions. Exactly. So all these complaining about uh, getting on (laughs) hospital committees and committee memberships, you know, they're actually really important things to get involved with. Yeah, I agree. So if you want (laughs) to, if you want to change your local hospital's policy on wearing masks, because masks suck and increase the risk of infection, (laughs) you should get involved. Yeah, you get on that committee. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Or actually, I think at this point, you probably have to get on the national committee yeah. for that one since that's I'm guessing that's a Jayco requirement. Yeah. <laughs> I think Jayco would kind of freak out if they walked into the OR and no one was wearing masks. <gasps> what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> the inspector's head would literally explode. Just <laughs> so oh, man. bottom line summary, take us home. So bottom line summary, you know, we looked at a few things. Yeah. You know, surgical scrubs, great thing to have. Not really great evidence for or against. And if you really want to look at the evidence, nothing. Yeah. No hospital's going to let you do that. So <laughs> good for scrubs. Sure. Don't mind them doing the laundry. Drapes, great thing. Yeah. It looks like disposable drapes have a benefit over non-disposable drapes. We have a way of measuring their penetrance. Yeah. Fluid impermeable is probably good. And we have a great RCT that shows, you know what, disposable drapes seem to, seem to do great. Yeah. In terms of surgical gowns, yeah, if we show back in the 60s, that single use appears to have a benefit over multi-use gowns. Overall, the gowns we have seem to be reasonable. Yeah. We did see also that jackets appear to be a joke. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that uh, it, while, you know, they, they do make some points, you know, if you're having a jacket, it might it might help. And they had some good thoughts behind that. What we mm-hmm. found was that jackets actually don't seem to matter. Yeah. Masks, while initially they may have helped in the early 1900s, whatever changes we made since then, 
appears to make masks more of a personal protective equipment than a, a useful yeah. adjunct to decrease infectious risks for the patient. Sure. <laughs> Pretty good evidence that there's no difference. Right. And possibility of harm. Yeah. Yeah. Very slight possibility of harm. And then finally, hats. The type of hat you wear doesn't seem to matter at all. Yeah. There is great evidence to show that it does not matter what kind of hat you're wearing. It's got to cover a reasonable amount of hair. Unfortunately, for beards, everyone still wants you to cover your beard. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> With absolutely no evidence supporting that, alas. Unfortunately. For the bearded individuals out there. And, you know, they didn't even test modifications you could make. You could seriously, braid the beard. Seriously. If you braid it, no straight hair is going to fall down. I don't really want to braid my beard. Oh, um, unfortunately. Yeah, <laughs> cool. Well, I think that was a interesting review of the evidence. Like that, kind of as I would expect. You know, some things there's that, some things there's reasonable evidence for, some things reasonable evidence against. And unfortunately, the bottom line is always it's not going to matter. It's whoever's making the policy is just going to make the policy, and that's it. Right. But the bigger theme, yeah, of if you don't want people telling you to implement crazy <laughs> things, <laughs> yeah, you have to be one of the people that decides what is a crazy thing and what is not a crazy thing. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever thing you're passionate about, you should get involved in the policy making for that thing. Otherwise, you're just going to have to listen to other people making the rules. Right. Cool. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for reviewing that, Carl. I found that super interesting. So as always, if you have any comments, if you have any concerns, questions, please reach out to us. You can reach me at bill at freshbrains.wtf. And you can reach me at carl at freshbrains.wtf. Carl with a K. Yep. You can find me on Twitter at at Bill Gross MD. And I still don't remember my Twitter handle. Carl still needs to get <laughs> on Twitter. Or go to our website, freshbrains.wtf. Otherwise, we will see you next time. I look forward to AORN's angry response to us. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> get all pissed off. All right. But please put your guidelines not behind a paywall. <laughs> yeah, yeah. At least, at least publish your gun. Right. All right. <laughs> yeah. I have, to, I have to tune my laugh. <laughs> Has to be like you know, pompous and annoying. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. All right. I don't know where to go with that. <laughs> <laughs> they, <Otherwise>. uh, <laughs> Now, there are a few further retrospective general uh, surgery studies that show a reduction. Try that one again. (laughs) (laughs) No, I want to roll through this. (laughs) That's a a lot of editing right there. (laughs) Can you just, like, adjust the syllables? Yeah. (laughs) Not post. (laughs) Post. (laughs) All right. Well, you know, surgeons are the most dreamy doctors. Uh, There's actually a BMJ article that confirms that.